Welcome to the EdTech Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Going into the 2018-2019 school year, Every Student Succeeds, or ESSA, is finally going from a plan to a policy, changing the standards placed on teachers and districts for student success. The biggest change comes to the A word, accountability. For many schools, their accountability systems are too complex or disjointed, making essential data difficult to access but still punishing districts with performance numbers. Here to tell us how schools can better harness data to actually create a more personalized education for their students is Paul Livingston, Director of Educational Strategy for EDIS and founder of ETAG. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to dive into this subject. You know, I, I think we live in a world where data is so easy to access and we have such a plethora of it that I think we've actually almost hit an inverse. Whereas before we were craving more information and now we have so much information and we don't know what to do with it. It's hard to sift through. It's hard to organize. And I know that there's new federal law. It's not particularly new, but it's being implemented in the 2018-2019 school year, ESSA, and it's requiring better usage of data within school districts. Could you expand on that a little bit and tell us sort of where school districts and schools have been in the past with harnessing data for their students and sort of where there's still room to improve? The data for schools is very prolific because we collect data on so many things, just like every other industry, every other corporation in the world. And unfortunately, I feel that the data that we collect has not been accessed and used really to inform the bottom line, which for schools is student achievement. If you go back into the education law about student data privacy, that may give some indication as to why there's been a hesitancy. It's somewhat like, you know, hospital data and, you know, our individual data for health records. But the law actually goes back to the FERPA regulations, which are the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which very much before internet and before electronic exchange, that was in 1974. And uh, basically, it was enacted and guaranteed that parents have access to their child's education record and that it restricts who can access and use student information. Since then, there's been various amendments or adjustments in different laws. There was uh, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, so COPPA, C-O-P-P-A, and that controls what information is collected from young children by companies operating various websites or games or mobile applications. And that's mainly directed towards children under the age of 13. It does require that there's a clear privacy policy and provide direct notice to parents and that you have to obtain consent before collecting information from children under 13. And then there's the Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment, which outlines restrictions for the process when students are asked for information as part of like a federally funded survey or evaluation. For example, a survey might be used to better understand the effects on students of drug and alcohol use or sexual conduct. They might also seek to understand the impact on students with family backgrounds that include violence. And schools must be able to show parents any of these survey materials that are used and provide parents with choices for any surveys that deal uh, with certain sensitive categories like that. The most recent <clears throat> additions that have been widely used in schools 
is a sign-on to the Student Data Privacy Pledge, which comes from the Future Privacy Forum and the Software and Information Industry Association. They introduced this, and it regards the collection and maintenance and the use of student personal information. The pledge is not intended, really, as a comprehensive privacy policy, uh, nor is it in, to be inclusive of all requirements. So it's, it's sort of a, a good step to take for companies, but it doesn't guarantee all aspects of the law are being met. The work that's really being done most recently comes out of the Consortium on Data Privacy, sometimes called COSIN. And COSIN is really working across the country to create an agreement that would be signed by both the vendor and the purchaser of whatever software or ed tech product is being talked about and ta speaks to how the data is stored, how it's protected, how it's encrypted nightly to make sure that the accuracy, the, the, the feel-good nature and the safety of the data is really there for parents, for the vendor, for the school district to feel safe. I'm not a direct technologist. I'm a user of data and a, and a school person, but this is really taking hold across, I think there's about 28 states that have now signed on with the uh, COSN, the, the COSN group, and it's really come to be the standard. The hope might be that over time, each state will become, they all follow similar principles, but that each state will come to a similar document, maybe not completely alike, but more so alike than different, and then meet the need across the country. A lot of that data work has caused a little bit more, I think, freedom and flexibility for school districts and parents to feel comfortable working together for data. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of hoops to jump through, both on a district level and a federal level to make sure that the data is used correctly and responsibly, which makes sense. I mean, we, we want our students' data to be safeguarded, but we still want to be able to access it and use it to its full extent. So it's it's definitely a toss-up there, getting that balance correct. It's very much been a frustration in many ways, because when you think of data used for the purpose in other industries, it defines what your next steps are, how you learn, what the customer wants. And for ourselves in schools, the bottom line where, where the rubber hits the road is that we need data to inform the instruction for students. And if you can inform instruction to make instruction more personalized, more targeted, uh, certainly the dream for each individual, but at least for, for small groups of differentiated groups of children that need similar help, if the instruction improves, obviously the uh, student achievement is going to improve as well. And that's really what we want. All the other purposes of data for school districts in terms of monitoring all the other aspects of the of the district in terms of attendance and purchasing powers and staff attendance, student attendance, demographics, ethnicity, all those things and filling out federal and state reports, all those can be there as well. But in reality, the bottom line is when you can improve student achievement. And that hasn't always been shown successful in the past. But I think there's many different reasons for that. So let's get into how school districts have been using data in the past. Um, and sort of where that change needs to come. Uh, I know that basically a lot of data is maintained in separate silos that just don't don't connect from one to the other. 
and students and teachers, you know, the, the data is pretty isolated and it's kind of hard to bring it all together and see the bigger picture. Um, so could you give me some examples of what data is being collected, but how its isolation is actually keeping it from being useful? Data is, is in so many different places because school districts have grown and developed and purchased things in different ways over time. Obviously, the fundamental piece is the SIS, the Student Information System, that holds typically all the demographic data, age, name, you know, it's sort of the record over time of, of where the child has been. But that is often separate from attendance data, from behavior data, from special education or uh, ELL data, and certainly all separate from the various achievement data that's, that's out there. So often, schools have been making decisions based on one particular source of data, whether it's their annual state test, which oftentimes you don't get results for until four months after the school year has ended. And then you're, you're looking at something and so many things have changed for, for the student, for the system, for the curriculum, perhaps. It's, it's somewhat of an autopsy. It's not necessarily current. What we really want to find is a way that you get real-time data, that if you've given uh, an assessment this week or yesterday, that it comes into the data profile for the, for the school, for the classroom, for the individual student overnight, so that then you can start doing a comparison with what are the standards that the child has made? What are the standards that the child has not met? How do we use that information together with all the other pieces of information we have, really a 360-degree profile, to determine what, what's the best course to take now? What's the next step in instruction? And the frustration is that all of those have sat in their separate silos and not been able to be brought down into one platform. And then the real key is in real time, meaning that once it's posted and most data now is electronic, whether it be in the cloud or whether someone is actually entering it into some kind of electronic spreadsheet or, or Google Sheet or whatever, that in reality, it can now be real time. And I think many schools still think getting data at certain intervals is critical enough. And I'm not sure I, I agree with that because I think the nature of instruction, the nature of schools, the nature of children, where it changes so rapidly, we really need to have a finger on the pulse of what's happening day to day. And that is now possible in the 21st century. That's so important to be able to respond to data immediately. And I think the fact that the data has been so isolated in the past means that people might be making decisions for students based on one set of data, whereas there's plenty and plenty of other information out there that could better decide a decision for, okay, this student maybe needs to be held back a year because of so-and-so information, but but you don't have full access to all the records or medical issues or anything like that. If, if you're not getting the full picture, you could be actually making a wrong decision for a student. Correct. For a student or for a classroom or a school or a district. And I think it's important to think of those stakeholder levels that the data provided needs to be able to be disaggregated from the district level all the way down to the individual student. So that includes the school, the, the grade level or the department, such as the math department or the science department, and then down to the individual classroom, and then ultimately 
a 360 degree profile of every child and have it be cumulative from year to year. So it really becomes like an electronic Hume folder, as it would be called in a school. The other difficulty in schools is that, unfortunately, budgetarily, we don't have the level of technology services often in schools that a business would have. And the people that are in place are often the hardware kind of people, the, the ones that keep different aspects of electronic technology up and running. But the front end of the software side and the data analysis that needs to take place to make this valuable, the staff isn't there from a technological side. And then when you get to the school level, oftentimes the collaboration time for teachers to use this data is not always available. I think when I had said earlier that I think there's several factors that have prevented the good use of data in schools is the first being the, the idea of people concerned about privacy and, and making sure that that's good. But a second primary piece is the time available for teachers to collaborate on the data. I always believe that data is more valuable when it's turned into information, particularly visualized information, whether it be red, yellow, and green charts or, or other kinds of box and whisker charts or whatever profile you're, you're looking at for a dashboard. But even then, data information still just informs the conversation. It doesn't necessarily provide the solution. It may point to certain things, but it's really the professional judgment and the skill of professional teachers working together collaboratively to take a look, to understand, and then to determine, just as any professional does, what the next step is. And unfortunately, that time in school is often not carved into the day. Many, many schools, many, many good teachers work on their, their lunch hours, before or after school hours, during their break times, their re recess times, to work together. But it's best when you can have I'd like to think a minimum of 45 minutes a day that teachers can collaborate. And then you're really using the information from the data wisely and accurately because it's informed by good professional judgment. Yeah, I, I love that. I think collaboration is key to any better quality product. Um, you know, we had someone on the podcast talking about how collaboration helps students be more creative. And so it's cool to see how that collaborative nature can affect different levels of the education sphere. Based on what you were talking about, I wanted to expand a little bit on the technology and the effects of the technology. So I know that Edis is really trying to give a 360-degree perspective of all the data, bringing it into one centralized, easy-to-use platform so that people can access that data and use it in real time. So I wanted to know a little bit about what kind of technology helps make that possible? And, you know, what technology are you harnessing to give that full, easy-to-use perspective? And then, expanding on that, how can teachers then use that data to create a more personalized experience for their students? Sort of a two-parter. The first piece is that, uh, I mentioned it before, is that it has to be in real time. It has to be accurate and up-to-date, obviously. The second critical piece, I think, is that it needs to be easily accessible, basically with the click of a mouse. I've seen many products, many different data products or, or individual pieces of software that they can do an awful lot 
of the things we're talking about. But unfortunately, it takes a week's professional development in August before the school year starts to learn how to do it. You get a two-inch binder, and at that particular moment, you may know how to configure the right things to pull it all together. But then when you first come to it a month later, as you're maybe sitting in your first professional learning community, some of that learning has been forgotten because so much has happened in between. The professional development was great, but there's a lag time before it's used, and thus you're back in the binder trying to figure out how to do it instead of actually using the time to make the right adjustments to instruction. So the software of data needs to be very intuitive, very simple to use, very easy to combine the different silos and say, now we need to look at the behavior data. We need to look at the attendance data in relationship to this achievement data. We need to very simply be able to break it down by different subgroups, whether ethnicities or low-income ELL status. And it all needs to be at the fingertips because teachers have precious limited time, if at all, like I said earlier, to work on it. And as a result, they really need to focus on it immediately. And that's been a, a critical missing step, I think. What the second part of the question? Well, like I said, the, the idea of the data simply informing the conversation. I don't see technology ever able to replace the professional judgment of good teachers because they know the ins and outs, the day-to-day -day nature of, of the classroom of the, of the student in order to make the right judgments to help them as they should in a nurturing environment, in a school environment. Basically, though, as the data can be looked at from the school level and the district level and the classroom level, the grade level, it helps inform curriculum decisions being made. Are we going to use this resource to, in our next work on this group of standards, let's say in math or in the ELA, are we going to use that other resource that we have? So often it's critical for the kind of match of the materials you're using with what the student needs to make sure it, it fits the need, fits the level of the student and their, their ability to move forward. The other piece that's critical is sharing the data with the individual students. I've seen even kindergarten and first grade classrooms using data walls with their children and not necessarily that uh, Paul's name is there with his, his score and his number, but it's on a wall in some way so a child can see anonymously, you know, if this is my bar and quietly the child is aware of which where they fall, they see how they're doing in comparison to others. And they can collaborate together in groups themselves and, and learn how to, to strive to be better. I think there's been a lot of work at middle schools about conferencing with students about the work. And if you can do conferencing, I think oftentimes all the way through K through 12, it empowers the child with the knowledge about how they're doing and thus creates in them an intrinsic kind of knowledge and willingness to, I can do better than this. And that really, I think, is where great growth can happen for individuals. That's that's really, really exciting. I, I love when when data can create tangible change for students like that and uh, you know give them that personalized experience. It, it has to be done in a way that's not threatening. I mean, that's the other... I think third piece of, of what schools have faced in terms of utilizing data is that for so long and for so many years, data has really been used against schools. It's been used to blame and compare and, and contrast and say, 
well, this year you didn't make it and this school failed and this classroom failed. And unfortunately, it's been used as a whip and it's been used on data that is often old state kind of testing data. And it's not been used in a way that has empowered teaching staff, even principal administrative staff, to use their data. It's been used against them instead of being given to them in a way that they can look at it themselves, turn it into information, collaborate about it, and use it to take that next best step for their, for their children. And that, that empowerment is a third critical piece, you know, from, from getting over the barrier of the student data privacy to getting over the barrier of time and then ultimately getting over that barrier of fear that it's not a principal or an evaluator breathing down your back, but it's somebody working with you and helping you use it and you're collaborating with your other professionals to take that next step together. That's a cultural aspect of schools that really has is starting to change and starting to change fairly dramatically, but it still has a ways to go to make it successful and valuable for students. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think with that collaboration that you mentioned earlier and empowering teachers to not be scared of the data, but instead to access it to its full potential and, you know, with products like Edis that are helping bridge the gap between all the different kinds of data that's that are accessible to teachers and to school districts i think there's a bright future there for sure where students are going to have a more personalized and in-depth education because we're accessing our data to its full extent so thank you so much paul for coming on the podcast and giving us this insight on sort of this data revolution within education technology and you know where we still need to grow but the optimism that's behind it too the hope certainly is that we'll be using the 21st century tools for teaching and learning that do exist, that are available, that, that aren't overly expensive, that we're using those before we hit the 22nd century. Right, exactly. <laughs> I hope all schools get access <laughs> as soon as they can. We have 88 years, or 80 years, right? Or 82 years? Hey, I should go back to school for math. Yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> I we didn't can help that you with that. Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks again, Paul, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time. Till next time.